Welcome to How Dentists Get Paid, the podcast where we talk about topics and trends in dentistry to explore the possible effects on your bottom line. Today's episode is the first in a two-part series all about the U.S. healthcare system as it relates to dentistry, with some perspective from around the world. In this first part, we're going to examine the U.S. healthcare system comparatively, breaking it down by looking at other healthcare systems in the developed world. We'll also take a look at the history of how different systems around the world came to be. In the next part, we'll dive into the policy proposals floating around in the political sphere as the 2020 election approaches, breaking down, as always, how each of these proposals might change things for you and your practice. Now, this topic, the economics of healthcare, is incredibly complex. The ACA, for example, took hundreds of the world's top economists, policymakers, and technocrats, if not thousands, to conceive of and implement. So I'm not going to tell you everything you need to know, because really, I don't know or exactly what will happen with specific policy changes. Like in other episodes, this is a journey you and I are both on. I've read and digested the relevant material floating out there, and what I'll try to do is present the facts, highlighting potential consequences for a variety of stakeholders, obviously including dentists. As always, I encourage you to write in at brandon at howdentistgetpaid.com with questions, comments, diatribes, rants, or commendations. So, without further ado, let's talk about how dentists get paid in the U.S. healthcare system. Healthcare is one of the biggest issues in today's politics. In a real clear politics poll from May 15, 2019, a plurality of 36% of Americans named healthcare as the top issue facing the country today with the next most common issue being the economy at 26% and then immigration at 15% after that. A supermajority, 67% of Americans, say that our system is either not working well or completely broken. On the other end of the spectrum, only 4% of respondents said our system needs no change. These are really staggering numbers. And the natural extension of this is that as a democracy, we should expect some policy change to reflect this popular will. We should logically expect the American political class to take heed of this overwhelming popular will for change. That's just, you know, basic, uh, the mechanisms of politics. Later on, we'll look at some of these potential policy changes. But for now, know that change is likely, at least in the next two to five presidential election cycles. And many of these proposals do include dental coverage. Before we get into all this, let's talk about the evolution of our healthcare system and that of some countries around the world. How did we get here? The first thing I want to do is throw down some definitions related to healthcare. So number one, Medicare for all and single payer are two terms for national health insurance, where the government runs a single health insurance program without private insurers. In this system, the government is the quote-unquote single payer of doctors, dentists, and other providers. But these providers don't work for the federal government. Think of Medicare or Medicaid. Providers who accept either of these two insurance programs don't work for the federal government, but they are paid by it. Next is Medicare for all who want it, also called the public option. In this system, the government provides an option to its citizens to join a public health insurance program, but still allows for private insurers, whereas Medicare for all generally doesn't. The name is really the best way to explain it. Medicare for all who want to opt in. For those who don't, you don't have to. 
when the government not only runs a national health insurance program, but also employs the majority of providers, that is called socialized medicine. True socialized medicine is actually extremely rare in Western society. All right, now on to our tour around the world. We'll talk about three models in three countries, each of which is unique. The United States, the NHS in the United Kingdom, and Sweden. All right, so the United States. I think the culture of the United States is important in speaking to the history of healthcare in this country. I may have talked about this in a previous episode. I think I did, actually. But I read a book a few months ago called The Third Pillar. And it talked about the first two pillars on which all societies stand, the market and the state. And the third was community. Uh, The book's author, Raghuram Rajan, former governor of the Reserve Bank of India, argued that in American society, while the state has grown gradually, the market now dominates to the detriment of the state, but more so to the detriment of the community. In other developed nations, the state is generally much stronger, the market generally much weaker, and the community generally better supported. In fact, it is the more powerful state which steps in to safeguard the place of the community and families, mandating weeks of paid vacation, up to a year of maternity and paternity leave, and of course setting standards for the market like the safety and health of food. If you look on the back of a lot of different products that you have in your house, a lot of the times it'll say, Uh, known to the state of California to uh, have substances causing cancer. That's kind of an example of that. California is more towards, you know, a regulatory state um, on that spectrum. So perhaps because of the nature of the founding of this country, settling a new land, bucking an oppressive government, and the resulting incredibly pioneering and independent spirit, we have resisted growth of the state more than have our Western counterparts. But At the same time, our strong American market has vaulted us to the top of the liberal international order, at least for the past 70 or so years. Now, various interest groups have been fighting for a greater role of the state in healthcare in the United States for a century, though they've been continually defeated. The exceptions are Medicare and Medicaid, resulting from the Social Security Act of 1965. Then during President George W. Bush's term as president, Medicare Part D, or optional prescription drug coverage, was passed. And then, as we know, as President Obama took office in 2008, the ACA began to take shape. The law used existing private insurance models to extend coverage to more Americans. Now Americans are clamoring for change in our healthcare system. So here are some facts before we continue. There were 27.5 million Americans without health insurance in 2018, and 4.3 million uninsured children. There were 74 million Americans without dental insurance, with about a quarter of children going without dental insurance. Per capita health expenditure in the U.S. is double that of the OECD average. That means our healthcare spending per capita is about double that of Sweden, Norway, Germany, and other countries with universal healthcare though we have worse overall outcomes like life expectancy, infant mortality, etc. In the U.S., about half a million people go bankrupt due to medical bills every year. The crowdfunding platform GoFundMe reports that it hosted more than 250,000, or a quarter of a million, medical campaigns last year, raising at least $650 million. Proposals being floated vary from building on the Affordable Care Act to abolishing private insurance in favor of a single-payer system. 
More on that later in the second episode of this series. All right, so the UK. The NHS, or National Health Service, as the UK's socialized healthcare system, was born out of post-war England in 1948, a time when both the physical and human toll of the war weighed deeply on the national consciousness. A sense of egalitarianism prevailed in those times, when both rich and poor had died for their country in the fight against fascism. The campaign for universal healthcare had three main ideals. First, that the service helped everyone. Second, that the healthcare was free. And third, that care would be provided based on need rather than ability to pay. For more than 70 years, the service has fulfilled this mission, surviving reforms and reorganizations. Now, though, the service is in crisis. Providers are undercompensated in some areas relative to neighboring countries and overworked. Hospitals are understaffed. Costs to the taxpayers are rising, as are wait times. A large part of this is the growing and aging population that is becoming a problem in all Western societies. When our baby boomer generation was young, there were far fewer elderly as a proportion of Western societies. With advances in medical care and a decrease in the birth rate, people are living longer and requiring much more care. So what exactly is the NHS? It is true socialized medicine, with a single payer being the UK government and almost all providers employed by the national government. All care is free, excluding dental and the maximum that can be paid for prescription drugs is $12. So nearly all doctors and nurses in the UK are employed by the NHS. The average full-time income for a UK physician in 2016 was £115,000, compared to £84,000 in France, £111,000 in Germany, £47,000 in Spain, and £220,000 in the US. So that is a dramatically higher income in the U.S., and even more when you consider the lower tax rate in this country. Of course, it's also worth mentioning the generous paid time off, parental leave, etc. Germany, for example, has a minimum of five weeks paid time off for all workers. Not to mention, of course, the health care provided with those extra tax dollars. So they do have private insurance, and it works much like in the U.S., Unlike in Canada, where you legally cannot buy insurance with coverage overlapping that of the universal government-provided coverage. For the most part, though, the physicians working in private practice are the same ones working at the NHS. The main benefit is lower wait times for certain procedures. Now, NHS dentistry is entirely different. The aim of NHS dentistry is to provide dental treatment to the whole population, the same as with medical care. The reality, though, is that most dentistry in the UK is provided by private practitioners. NHS dentistry struggles to see even half the population in a one-year period. But NHS dentistry is free for minors, for recent mothers, and for low-income patients. So, for that reason, the market for dental services and labor is more similar to that of the US, compared to the market for medical services. So dentists work fewer hours than NHS doctors and are compensated much better generally. So right here, we have a good example, internationally, of a comparison of socialized versus non-socialized healthcare systems. Within the UK, we have socialized medical care and a freer market for dentistry. Um, I'll talk later in the episode about why the economics of dentistry are just simpler, kind of for structural reasons, like fewer players, you know, no hospitals, much less reliance on pharmaceuticals. So we'll see the difference is not completely based on the level of market freedom, but it has some effect. 
Uh, structurally, it does seem the economics of medical care are more prone to um, have costs balloon and have abuses by stakeholders like pharmaceutical companies and hospitals just be more prevalent. In Sweden, dental care is free up to the age of 23, and there are government subsidies and maximum cost protections for those 24 and older. The subsidies kick in if somebody spends more than about 300 US dollars on dental care within a year. From there to about 1500 US dollars in a year, the government will cover 50% of the cost, 5-0, and above $1,500, the government will cover 85%. None of this can be applied to cosmetic work, of course. For medical care in Sweden, there's one big difference you know, between Sweden and the UK. While the UK is a true example of socialized medicine, uh, that is a government, for the most part, employing healthcare providers, this is not so true in Sweden. Healthcare is delivered by a mix of privately and publicly employed providers. And in Norway, Sweden's Scandinavian neighbor to the east with a, a relatively similar system, almost all primary care is delivered by private doctors. Anyway, so the result of this, uh, this kind of cost protection uh, and cost containment with the subsidies is lower pay. In this case, pretty significantly lower pay for dentists. Uh, reliable data for Swedish dentist salaries is kind of hard to find, but using Statista.com, a data aggregating site, and looking at the more widely available average physician salaries, uh, I'm going to make an approximation, an educated approximation of about fifty to eighty thousand U.S. dollars a year in salary, uh, which is, you know, I think definitely above the average salary in Sweden, uh, but it's no two hundred twenty thousand as it is in the U.S. All right, now you have a primer for the next episode where we'll begin to dive deeper on dissatisfaction with the American healthcare system, some reasons for that, and policy proposals that intend to remedy the biggest issues. We'll look at how these proposals might affect dentist salaries, you know, uh, practices and patient relationships. So you won't want to miss it. See you in two weeks. I do want to thank eAssist for allowing this podcast to happen, for sponsoring the podcast. Um, if you're looking for outsourced dental billing, eAssist is the number one outsourced dental billing provider. You can increase your income by outsourcing your billing, taking the pain out of getting paid. There are no software changes needed. They don't get paid unless you get paid. They help your staff. They don't replace your staff. And there are no long-term contracts. It's less stress, more peace of mind. You know, I work with them. They help with this podcast. Uh, they're all great people, and I can guarantee you're not going to regret working with them yourself. Go to dentalbilling.com for more info.